This is the podcast Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Jeff Guy. I am the uh, uh, director of the Burn Center at Vanderbilt and associate professor of surgery. Today I want to do a uh, journal review, a journal club type review, of an article that appeared recently in the Journal of Burn Care and Rehab. It's an article by uh, Dr. Jeff Saffel, who is a true gentleman and scholar, who is the director of the Burn Center at the uh, Intermountain Burn Center in Salt Lake City. He wrote an article called The Phenomena of Fluid Creep in Acute Burn Resuscitation. And overall, it's a good review of the history, excuse me, the historical development of the burn resuscitation formulas that we use currently Perhaps some of the um, uh, errors we've made over the decades uh, with that uh, formula and discusses some of the problems that we uh, have currently in modern burn care of uh, uh, fluid creep, uh, edema, excessive edema, and abdominal compartment syndrome. The development of effective fluid resuscitation regimens is one of the cornerstones of modern burn treatment and perhaps the advance which has most directly improved patient survival. Beginning in World War II, patients with even moderate burns often died within a few days of progressive shock and renal failure. In 1921, Underhill's study of the victims of the Rialdo Theater fire led him to conclude that the loss of intravascular volume led to life-threatening shock state syndrome that could be treated with infusions of normal saline. Then in 1942, following a coconut grove fire, Cope and Moore designed the first formal resuscitra- uh, resuscitation regimen that was used to treat the victims of Coconut Grove nightclub fire, uh, which demonstrated a reduction in mortality. With continued refinements in resuscitation, almost all patients can now be resuscitated successfully, and renal failure complicating acute burn injury has become rare. There are a variety of formulas used to treat uh, burn patients' burn resuscitation. Almost all are based on body weight, burn size, and use of various combinations of a fluid. The most well-known of these is the Parkland formula described by Charlie Baxter. Since it was first published nearly 40 years ago, its accuracy has become universally accepted uh, in the burn care community. It has been very surprising, therefore, that recent reviews have repeatedly demonstrated that patients with major burns now often require resuscitation volumes which significantly exceed Parkland predictions. The explanation for this experience is unclear, but its occurrence has been linked to an increased recognition of the complications of edema, including what I absolutely cannot stand, and that's abdominal compartment syndrome. Dr. Pruitt, in a great editorial a few years back in in Journal of Trauma, coined the term fluid creep, and and he used this to describe this uh, trend uh, for uh, increasing fluid. And in that editorial, he, he called for clinicians to, quote, push the pendulum back, end quote, in the direction of more conservative fluid resuscitation. Recently, in the journal Shock, a colleague, and uh, I'm a co-author on a paper that uh, really one of my colleagues um, wrote a wonderful paper on uh, Shock, uh, on uh, uh, going over the various historical development of our resuscitation strategies and, and some of the problems that we are facing today because we really are are not recognizing the developments that we've made in the past. Saffel asked the question right in his article. He says, is fluid creep really a new phenomenon, or has the intimidating stature of the Parkland format kept clinicians from speaking up to challenge one of the most cherished icons of burn treatment until recently? He goes on, he says, has the nature of burn injury changed? Most important, is fluid creep harmful to patients? Can it be prevented or controlled? In 1968, Charlie Baxter reported that resuscitation of dogs with 50% total body surface area burns with a volume of lactate ringer solution uh, equal to 24 to 32% body weight returned cardiac output and extracellular fluid and volume plasmas to near normal, restored transcellular membrane potentials, and corrected the metabolic and lactic acidosis by the end of 24 hours. Optimal results were achieved when most of this fluid was given in the first 8 hours after injury. 
They went, then went and looked at patients. And in a trial group of 11 patients with burns between 30 and 85% were similarly resuscitated and required a volume of 3.5 to 4 milliliters of lactated ringers per kilogram body weight per percent total body surface area given over the first 24 hours. Baxter noted that crystalloid alone, however, would not completely replete the extracellular fluid volume. Some colloid replacement was also needed to accomplish this. It was from these observations that the original Parkland formula was generated. The original Parkland called for lactated ringers at a volume of 4 mLs per kilo per percent total body surface area burn given over the first 24 hours from injury. Half of this was given in the first 8 hours after injury, and the balance was given over the remaining 16, and adjusted to main urine output. What has been forgotten about the original Baxter formula is that there was a fourth 8-hour period, during which plasma, at a volume of 0.3 to 0.5 milliliters per kilogram per TBSA, was given to complete the resuscitation. During the remainder of the second 24-hour period, dextrose and water were given as needed to maintain urine output. Saffel writes on, he says, in 1979, Baxter reported results of this formula in the resuscitation of 954 patients treated from 1973 to 1977. He found that 70% of 438 patients and 98% of 516 children were resuscitated successfully, with 24-hour volumes ranging between 3.7 to 4.3 milliliters per kilogram per TBSA. So right around that 4 cc per kilo per TBSA. Only 12% of the adults required more than this volume, whereas 18% required less. He emphasized the importance of restoring cardiac output with the use of plasma, noting that output tended to level off at a low normal level and that, quote, further increases are unusual until plasma is administered in the fourth eight-hour period, end quote. Only 12% of patients required more than this volume. Now, when we look at our resuscitation strategies in probably any burn unit in the country, we're going to certainly say that probably greater than 4%, excuse me, greater than 12% require more than that 4 cc per kilo per TBSA burn. In another group of experiments in which patients were given boluses of plasma, at various times post-injury, plasma was found to be most effective in restoring extracellular fluid volume if given after 24 hours post-burn. These principles and the results were reiterated repeatedly in the next few years and were combined with recommendations from other burn centers. Other formulas came out, the Brook and Evidence formula. Moncrief uh, reviewed all formulas um, and uh, concluded that they were designed to continue resuscitation through an initial 48-hour period. All resulted in administration of roughly equivalent amounts of sodium and all relied on colloid administration as an important adjunct to replete plasma volume. In 1979, NIH-sponsored uh, conference on burn care was summarized with a statement that burn patients should be resuscitated with as little fluid as possible to maintain organ perfusion. As little fluid as possible. Initial fluid therapy should consist of isotonic crystalloid at a volume between 2 and 4 cc's per kilo per TBSA for the first 24 hours and titrated to maintain a urine output of 30 to 50 cc's per hour. More than 30 less than 50. Interesting enough, though, in that NIH conference in 1979, the use of colloid in the second 24 hours was not included. This recommendation has stood as the accepted consensus for burner resuscitation over 25 years and has resulted in the concurrent definition of the Parkland formula as a method to predict fluid requirements in the first 24 hours only and without the use of supplemental colloid. It's this departure from the original Parkland formula that may help explain the occurrences of fluid creep. 
Saffold continues to report in his article that before Charlie Baxter had even published his original uh, paper on the Parkland formula, he was noting exceptions to this 4cc per kilo per TBSA rule. Some patient groups who routinely required additional fluid included those with inhalation injuries. Sorry about that. He identified that some patient uh, groups routinely required additional fluid. These were those with inhalation injuries, patients with electrical burns, and those in whom resuscitation was delayed. A review of the literature demonstrates that virtually every review um, that patients with inhalation injury required increase in fluid requirements from 35 to 65% above those of patients without inhalation injury, regardless of the resuscitation regimen used. When we look at some of these other groups, we talked about electrical injuries and inhalation injuries requiring um, additional fluids. Those with delayed uh, resuscitations, those with multiple injuries, other uh, forms of mechanical trauma. Patients with alcohol and drug addiction uh, typically will require increased amounts of fluid resuscitation as well. A common problem is inexperienced clinicians starting the resuscitation strategies, and they typically will under or overestimate uh, the burn size as well as the uh, fluid requirements. Patients often arrive at burn centers and receive significant amounts of crystalloid, sometimes significantly more than required because of inaccurate estimations of burn size or basically, as, as uh, Saffel would say, overzealous or inattentive treatment. Parkland resuscitation has begun and continues fairly smoothly until 8 to 12 hours post-burn. At that time, instead of decreasing fluid requirements, uh, either they remain high or actually begin to escalate and range farther and farther from predictions. As this continues, problems with torso and extremity compartment syndromes, respiratory stress, and facial swelling may also develop. Now let's look at this issue of fluid creep and abdominal compartment syndrome, which as I told you, just um, abdominal compartment syndrome is just something I loathe. But uh, Saffel would write, in the early 80s, surgeons noted that increasing abdominal distension and bleeding was associated with oliguria and eventual renal failure, which could be reversed by abdominal decompression. This is typically manifested by increase in bladder pressures, which would provide some sort of objective indication for a, a laparotomy. Abdominal compartment syndrome is also known as secondary abdominal, abdominal compartment syndrome. Typically, it's what we see in burn patients when it occurs in the absence of any kind of intra-abdominal pathology or injury. Um, secondary abdominal compartment syndrome in burn patients has been uh, uh, repeatedly described. Other complications can occur from a secondary abdominal compartment syndrome, um, including a massive pleural and pericardial effusions, uh, compartmental compressions in unburned extremities, and the need to perform or prolong inhibitions in patients without inhalation injuries or facial burns. There's even been reports of increased intraocular pressures due to a massive fluid resuscitation. What are the factors that result in this uh, fluid creep and uh, these problems of edema and abdominal compartment syndrome? Along as variation in practice among burn centers, we all subscribe uh, or bow to the altar of the Parkland formula, but burn centers uh, vary in uh, how they resuscitate patients. What about the notion that perhaps the Parkland formula isn't accurate for patients with very large burns? In Baxter's studies, patients with large burn injuries required more fluid for resuscitation than those with smaller burns. The majority of patients with burns of greater than 60% TBSA died, and death was attributed to what they referred to as resuscitation failure in a majority of the cases. Saffel uh, writes in a recent review of uh, burn resuscitation, fluid requirements correlated with both the total and full thickness burn size, ranging from approximately 4 ml per kilo per percent burn for moderate injuries to almost 6 ml per kilo per uh, percent burn for burns of 80 to 100 percent. And the patients with the largest injuries were most likely those who would fail resuscitation attempts. Another concept that's put forward is that the modern clinician is careless. 
and that uh, modern clinicians were less likely to reduce fluid infusions in the face of an increased urine output. And again, you know, somebody's making more than 50 cc's of urine an hour, that's perhaps too much, and the fluid should be dialed back. Another potential explanation that's put forward is what is the influence of goal-directed resuscitation, i.e. the PA catheters and all the numbers they generate. Uh, critical care practitioners have attempted to adjust resuscitation using various physiological or biochemical endpoints of resuscitation. And these include things like base lactate, lactic acid levels, and then there is the whole idea of superphysiological uh, resuscitations and using things like PA catheters to gauge our resuscitations based on cardiac index, oxygen delivery, or oxygen consumption. There were studies that looked at looking at the base deficit and lactic acid levels um, correlated to magnitude of injury and mortality in trauma patients. And therefore, we tried to, to resuscitate people to these supranormal levels of cardiac index and oxygen consumption and oxygen delivery uh, using things like PA catheters, driving the uh, PA cat, the uh, uh, pulmonary artery occlusive pressure up and pushing these patients with inotropes when perhaps they didn't need additional fluid and didn't need to be pushed so hard with inotropes. Initially, this looked like a promising mode of therapy, but subsequent studies have really failed to show that goal-directed therapy is superior to treatment based on standard clinical parameters. Burn providers have also tried the same studies that the trauma people have tried and in trying to guide our resuscitation based on these biochemical endpoints of lactic acid and base deficit. One case-controlled study did show an improvement in survival using goal-directed resuscitation over uh, other groups that subsequently failed to demonstrate that, that normalizing the base deficit is either effective or beneficial. Other studies have also tried to uh, target uh, measurements of preload, cardiac index, oxygen consumption, and those patients required more fluid, as much as four times Parkland predictions, without any signs of obvious improvement in survival. Patients in goal-directed therapy groups in one study required 56% more fluid than Parkland patients. And the authors of that study concluded it might be due to the fact that pure crystalloid resuscitation is incapable of restoring cardiac preload during the period of burn shock, which is exactly the same conclusion that uh, Charlie Baxter had 25 years earlier. Here's what I really love. This is a sentence by uh, Jeff Saffel. He says, It now appears clear that patients' ability to obtain or at least normal values of cardiac index, DO2, which is delivery, VO2, which is consumption, or base deficit, is predictive of survival following trauma and burns, but that it may be impossible to turn non-responders into responders by specific physiological manipulations. Addition studies confirm the classic observations of Baxter and others that restoration of preload and cardiac function and resolution of acidosis appear to require 24 to 48 hours to occur regardless of the resuscitation strategy used. Pushing these parameters of increased preload or inotropes results in greatly increased fluid requirements without obvious improvements in outcome. This is similar to something that Holcomb wrote recently in an article in the Journal of the American College of Surgeons about hemorrhage and, and different models of bleeding. What I like what Saffel is saying here is that we live in a microwave society where we think we can get anything done in a minute and that we need to resuscitate these patients back to normal values in a period of 15 or 20 minutes. And if our, we fail to do that, then we're going to have an increase in mortality. The data in this uh, uh, review doesn't support that and puts forward the notion that the attainment of normal values in somebody who's critically burned within 48 hours of injury may be an impossibility. He goes on, Although use of invasive monitoring may still be indicated in some high-risk patients and in patients with respiratory failure, heart disease, or an adequate response to standard treatment, even in these circumstances, data derived from the swan gas catheter may be more useful in avoiding major errors 
than in driving resuscitation to, quote, specific supraphysiological endpoints. The next item that Saffel attacks is the excessive crystalloid infusion on the starling forces and what happens with the abandonment of colloid resuscitation and its effect on starling forces. He goes through and presents several paragraphs of a nice physiological argument and talks about the increases in hydrostatic pressure and the reduction on conic pressures and then gets into the discussion of the prejudice of colloid and talks about several meta-analysis of trials comparing resuscitation regimens that have concluded that the use of colloids is harmful or deleterious to patients in a variety of situations, including burn patients. And he's talking about some of the data presented in the Cochrane data, for whom the odds ratio of mortality with albumin usage has been calculated to be as high as 2.4. Now here's where it gets good, because here's where he attacks uh, these uh, various uh, reviews uh, that have looked at uh, albumin as something harmful to burn patients. He says, although widely regarded as authoritative, these publications have been criticized for being based largely on very old, heterogeneous, unblighted studies which appears to be true for burns. A review of the Cochrane collaboration have evaluated only four small trials involving burn patients, only one of which showed an increase in mortality without human usage. This one study was by Goodwin and published in 1983, and they found that colloid resuscitated burn patients required less fluid than those who had received crystalloid alone, uh, 2.98 cc's per kilo for TVSA in the colloid group versus 3.81 um, in the uh, crystalloid group but also demonstrated progressive increase in lung water for up to seven days post-burn. Mortality was higher in the colloid group, 11 of 40 patients, than in the crystalloid group, though all patients died later of causes not obviously related to fluid resuscitation. Small study has influenced thinking about burn patients for over 20 years and has contributed perhaps excessively to the in, uh, indictment of colloid use in many centers. Men's Apple goes through in his paper and gives several um, uh, techniques or strategies to uh, avoid uh, the idea of fluid creep. Well, one, the first one is restrict uh, early fluid resuscitation. The second point is consider routine colloid or what we call colloid rescue. There have been subsequent studies that have shown that colloid-based resuscitation increases mortality, uh, uh, excuse me, fails to increase uh, mortality or complications in burn patients, but that same data does not demonstrate any benefit in its routine use. One potential approach to controlling creep uh, would be to adhere to the original Parkland-infused colloid bowls at the end of 24 hours post-burn. Um, this is still practiced in some units and should be considered situations where resuscitation is not straightforward. This is clearly the, the uh, practice uh, at uh, Vanderbilt. Uh, Yaller and Frediani also uh, uh, resuscitate with albumin at 12 hours post-burn when fluid requirements exceed about 120% of normal. And this is something that we also do as well as kind of a colloid rescue. Another technique which seems rather self-evident is the use of resuscitation protocols um, by having fixed protocols, having uh, nursing staff and, ha and house staff uh, educate on those protocols and adherence to those protocols, we can certainly um, avoid perhaps some of these runaway resuscitations. And one of his final points uh, are other resuscitation uh, strategies, the use of hypertonic saline, particularly in uh, uh, at-risk populations, namely uh, children uh, and uh, elderly patients. So in summary, this is a, a great article. If you have the opportunity to read it, it's in uh, the Journal of Burn Care and Rehab uh, this month. It really makes us to look critically at our resuscitation strategies uh, when taking care of a critically injured burn patient. Uh, certainly be mindful uh, to those of you may, who may be listening to this, will be working at a burn center taking care 
of a, a burn victim, um, some really salient features that really need to be nailed home is that excessive fluid administration of burn patients results in significant complications, pulmonary, abdominal compartment syndrome, and, and even the concept of that by over-resuscitating uh, patients, you actually can uh, make the burns actually even deeper uh, and cause problems like compartment syndromes. Try to stick um, to the uh, Parkland resuscitation. Uh, many patients can get away at the resuscitation at 2 cc's per kilo. If you can go that direction, certainly do that. Uh, we keep hearing the same point over and over again. Uh, give the burn patient as little fluid as they possibly can tolerate. Uh, if they're making less than 30 cc's of urine an hour, we're pretty good. I'd say we're real good at making sure the patient gets additional fluid. What we fail at, uh, in my opinion, is that recognizing that 60 or 70 cc's of urine output an hour in these patients is problematic as well, and we should dial back the uh, fluid resuscitation. Uh, we have resuscitation strategies for ramping up the fluids and dropping the fluids as well in my unit, and I try to do that perhaps um, judiciously so we're not crossing back and forth across the highway by making these wild rapid swings like a new kid driving a car so that once we do start getting um, uh, high urine outputs that we're systematically dropping the fluid rates by 10 or 20 percent. The other item brought up in this article that deserves your further consideration is what is the role of colloids. Colloids have been given a black eye by looking at things like the Cochrane database, SAFL presented in this paper, uh, some of the, uh, the uh, problems with those conclusions that there were small studies and that subsequent studies have shown uh, that uh, colloid resuscitation, these patients did not result in an increased mortality. But in fairness, they didn't show an improved survival either. It is the, uh, the practice in our unit at Vanderbilt that we'll typically start colloids in large burns after about 24 hours, and uh, we will use a colloid rescue at 12 hours for patients who are basically at the point of resuscitation of 60 cc per kilo per TVSA. That concludes this podcast. My name is Jeff Guy. Uh, certainly uh, uh, visit uh, the website www.burndoc.com. Thank you.